Hello and welcome back to Bourbon Barrel Talk. I'm your host, Scott Minton. With us today, we have our co-host, Matt Jasnoff. Hey. Yeah, th- thanks, Matt. <laughs> hey, I waved. I'm so glad you did. It's the nobody rum. Can, nobody can hear the wave. It's the, the wave. rum. It's not like the crowd. Uh, Toby's on sound. And then uh, today... <laughs> you can hear Toby's wave. This special... <laughs> This special episode is uh, brought to us by Rolling Fork Spirits and the founder and proprietor, Mr. Turner Walton. How you doing today, Turner? I'm fan. Hey, now that you guys are here, I'm fantastic. Good, so, good. Let's drink some rum. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you we said earlier, say, you had a really bad day until we got <laughs> we're, here. Right? We're the highlight of the day. I, I spend my day job selling to attorneys, so yeah, this is a lot better. So hey, Turner, if you don't mind, you know. Uh, how did you get here? I mean, Rolling Fork Spirits, you guys do special rum, things to that nature. And uh, if people hadn't caught it by now, I'm sure you're going to give us the story of the last name and how we got here. So very much appreciated. And thank you guys for letting me be on the show. Um, I would be remiss to say that uh, I do have a partner in this, Jordan Morris, who knows a thing or two about bourbon as well and rum and, and high, high end spirits. And he can't be with us today, but, but he and I have been working on this collectively since 2012. I've been working on this individually is since 2009, 2010. And this story goes back to when Charles Medley released Wathen's whiskey right around 98. And I always knew that my family had a lineage in American whiskey production. But my parents also, through their smart choices, really tried to keep me away from that history. Uh, Because in high school, when I was like, hey, mom and dad, there's a bourbon named after us. They're like, oh, shit, this is another reason for him to get arrested. And... (laughs) And so, so, they, so there was wait, other reasons. Yeah. What, oh, are, what, yeah. what were the, the other reasons? <laughs> I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, guys. I, I've always tried to accomplish something and it never always worked out. And I've got a story behind that later, but <laughs> you keep going. So I, I spent the, I'm a big history guy and I spent the latter part of, um, of my mid twenties piecing together this story. And the company's name is Rolling Fork Spirits, and it's derived after my family's historic Rolling Fork Distillery that was operated, uh, was one of the first distilleries to land back when, when Kentucky was a part of Virginia. It opened in 1786, and my family operated that distillery up and through the Civil War. And it was operated by uh, Henry Hudson Wathen, whom my son is named after. And Henry had two boys and a girl, one of those two boys continued to operate the Rolling Fork Distillery, and then that boy went on to have seven kids, which tied into my great-great-grandfather and my great-great-uncles. And all those kids, you, you, this, we're talking right around the time of, of um, the Industrial Revolution and the end of the Civil War. And our family had the good fortune of being able to have established businesses for multi-generations, those kids went to college. That's something that a, not a lot of families were able to afford or provide at that time. And my great-great-grandfather and his, his um, brothers and sisters were all college-educated. And after their degrees, they were all spread out to go work in the distilling industry, but in different capacities. And then came the 1890s, and 
that's when our family relocated our business from the Rolling Fork to Louisville, Kentucky to form the R.E. Wathen Company. And that's when my great-great-grandfather, Athanasius Wathen, acquired the Basil Hayden brand and the Hayden family distillery uh, after Basil's grandson had his uh, uh, own mishaps and challenges. And so we conglomerated this effort into Louisville into what would become American Medicinal Spirits during Prohibition. And I was just blown away by the brands that we had during Prohibition. E.H. Taylor, Old Granddad, Old Crow, Atherton. Um, old Some Her- of the biggest names. Old Hermitage. <clears throat> and then you have to dig into, well, shit, did we start these or did we buy them? Um, and a lot of them we bought. Uh, but we kept those brands alive through Prohibition, merged those brands into another company, National Distillers. And I feel like our family had a big part of one being the first producers in Kentucky and then managing the life cycle of these brands through the downturn of of American whiskey when when vodka was popular and hot. And so it, it means a lot to me to see brown spirits where they are in their place in, in American pop culture and American consumerism today. But that's what led me to figuring out in 2010, all right, I've read enough about it. What am I going to do about it? And I didn't think it fair to my predecessors in my family if I didn't teach myself how to still. Sure. And so because my partners aren't around and those assholes are attorneys, I was a home distiller for five years. Hmm. And I taught myself the craft of milling grain. I taught myself the craft of building mash bills. Uh, And through that, I think I cut my teeth on understanding distillate. Mm Mm-hmm. And we shopped, we, we kept it a secret for a long time, but we started shopping distillate around 2014, 2015, when, when it didn't suck. The first two objectives are, are you going to kill yourself and are you going to go blind? Or are you going to blow up? Accomplish those three tasks. All right. Then you got to figure out, can I make something that doesn't suck? Mm-hmm. And a lot of it, that takes time. Your cuts take time. You're, you're running in a small capacity. You don't know what you're doing. Once we got to the point where we didn't suck, we shopped it out and people said, well, now you got to figure out what you're going to do. And being Kentucky negatives, we first wanted to work with sorghum. And then we realized that did not have a commercial yield viable for production purposes. And that's when my partner, Jordan Morris said, let's go source really good rum and age them and bottle them in Kentucky be at the caveat of all of our products have no additives, no sugars, no caramels, nothing can influence the flavor of our spirits other than the way it was produced, the still that it came out of and the barrels that it was aged in and the climate that was, that it was aged in. Those are the only factors that we want affecting the quality spirits that we hope to bring to the market. I got a quick question. Um, what did you what What did you do for a living while you were making this stuff in in your in your garage or wherever you were doing the dis, uh, distillate? Well, uh, let's see. For a while, I was working at as a graduate admissions officer while getting my MBA at Bellarmine University, 
And that's where I ran the math on what it would take to launch a brand and what it takes to survive this startup phase. Yeah, that's exactly the reason I was asking is because there's so many times that that you want to do something and, and you're willing to risk whatever you're doing to be able to start something new. Um, and you decided to go ahead and go with it. And, and it's, it's something that I don't think anybody here on this podcast, other than starting this podcast is willing to, to put the effort out into doing things. So it takes a lot of, uh, um, balls to say, we are, to say the least. Well, a lot of balls. And Come then on you it. also, rum. Yeah, go on it. you also got to be pretty dumb. We are pretty <laughs> dumb. Uh, I mean, now that you I've got killed yourself yet, no, nope, you're nope. not that dumb. We're, we're not that dumb, but we are. If I could go back in reverse time, I would. I, I, part of me thinks I would just I would stick to being an enthusiast and a consumer. I think consumers devalue how much influence and how important they are to the entire marketplace, and being on the production side without any money is really stupid. It's you're you're outmanned, you're outgunned, you're never going to have everything flow through the way you want it to. And we've you I didn't ask the right questions. I didn't interview enough. We we learned from the school of hard knocks. See, one of the things that that you could have learned from is um, if this podcast was maybe eight, seven, eight years older than it is our last episode with uh, Boone County, he gave us a great piece of advice. Have a rich friend. Yeah. <laughs> find a rich friend, then go on going with them. Yeah. Yeah. Find a money bag. Find, <laughs> yeah. Find a money guy. Yeah. Back up the Brinks truck. Yeah. We keep on planting those trees in the backyard. <laughs> we grow money eventually. Our first product we released was called Fortuitous Union. It's called Fortuitous Union because it's an accidental blend of rum and rye whiskey. It's no. an, go ahead. Sorry. Will you explain accidental? I sure will. We wanted to make what you all just tried, which is our triple finished product, our rolling fork small batch, our El Salvador rum. We wanted to take some Trinidad rum and finish it in rye poured and sherry barrels. Got the formula approved by the TTB. My partner and I each put in about 15K, bought the barrels. Our grand plan was to take that product all the way up to ready to be bottled and then go raise someone else's money and spend their money on bottles and marketing and sales. That was the the grand plan. So while aging the product in an undisclosed area in Bardstown, the product was then to be moved from the rye barrels to the port barrels. Gets loaded up onto a dump tank. I'm there. I'm watching it happen gets dumped out and it scales a thousand pounds overweight and everybody standing around me leaves. And then the swinging dick in charge walks up 15 minutes later and says, we have a problem. And I'm like, no fucking shit. We have a problem. It weighs 10,000. It weighs a thousand pounds overweight. It, that's not how life works. What it get dumped into. And fortunate for us, it was someone else's rye whiskey. And it was a high rye, 95% MGP rye hey, that we took about that? 90 <laughs> gallons of. So we can't really complain. Yeah. And it, and it's really tasty. Accidents like, are beautiful. Like, like I told you when, before we started this, I'm not a huge rum fan, but like everything I've tried so far, I'm like, damn, this is really good stuff. Yeah, when you think of rum, 
uh, from someone who's not as enthusiastic as some of the others, you think of Seagram's and or uh, Bacardi and stuff like that that you're gonna you're gonna mix with something else. You you, you think of Captain Morgan, or Captain Sailor Morgan. Jerry. Yeah, that's that's. I, what don't, know. I don't think I'd mix this with Coke. I wouldn't no, put no. you in that category. No. But, that that fortuitous uh, union is very very tasty. So I mean, even though um, I read an article, I don't know if it's true or not that that you guys hate that name or that it wasn't real stoked on that name. We we love the name. Um, we hate the whole experience. Um, but I mean, it's it's in itself the name is is a is a middle finger to to the whole process. I can give you guys hats that say F U on them. Um. <laughs> Uh, no, the, the, is, that's, uh, I do have a good team. I do have good partners. And we had to totally pivot in a two-day period. And we came up with that name in a six-hour text message stream of what the fuck are we going to do. Mm-hmm. And we talked about, you know, okay, is it a wedding? Is it a marriage? Is it a bastard marriage? Oh, it's a union. Okay, we someone said union, done. Okay, well, is it unlucky? Is it is it? unbelievable is it is it terrible or is it fortunate and then someone said fortuitous and that's how we came up with the name we said oh that says f you let's do it so gotcha on a scale of one to ten how drunk do you have to be to think of oh this is fortuitous like i'm you i mean at least a seven right at least a seven your creative juices have to be flowing always and it was it was funny. We picked an entirely different bottle from our other products. We picked an entirely different package because we thought it would fail. And we thought, hmm. we don't want this associated with our objective. So let's make it look different. And luckily for us, it had a little bit of a cult following. And I hope you don't take this the wrong way. But to me, this is the coolest label out here. Yeah. But then you did the <laughs> second coolest thing that everybody loves to see on a bottle, which is you dipped it in wax. Dipped it in wax. That's right. We, it's we amazing. call that tatering a bottle. Taterific. <laughs> Taterific. Um, and of course, you see a that, gold. That's actually available at Total Wine, too, isn't it? Uh, that product. So batch one, we have completely depleted out our inventory. Uh, batch one is still available at Total Wine, Party Mart, state liquors, some liquor barns. Uh, but if anybody's listening, uh, reach out to us on Facebook. We'll message us. We'll tell you where it is, where to buy it. It is super tasty, by the way. Very tasty. This was the product I was the most excited to try whenever I looked at the bottles that were sitting on the table today. And, and I'll be honest with you, it, 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 it definitely delivered, you know, because I'm really super excited about yeah. Trinidad rum. So. so I didn't realize it was accidental MGP juice. Now yeah. that like, you don't now. You don't ever really put that on the label at all, saying that it was sourced Indiana rum. No, that is a part of the story we can talk about off air. Gotcha. My bad. But that's cool. Ha, that's a cool. Hit the one thing we can't talk about. <laughs> so what? What Matt? What do you think the ratio of rum to rye is in that? I I would honestly I would probably have to give it maybe a a seventy to thirty ratio about seventy percent rum thirty percent rye. That's really what I would. I would see that blend being at. Okay, yeah, well, you're right. So, Sorry, that wasn't what you were hoping no, for. No, <laughs> no, it's kind of cool because it's, it's... We told you Matt was an alcoholic before we started this. Most, drunk, alcoholics still go to meetings. <laughs> m- most people think it's the opposite, 
because the rye just overpowers overpowers the finish. Well, that's but, I mean that's a natural that's the natural take of a rye. You're going to have those overpowering spices that tend to mask a lot that's with it. Yeah, so, but yeah, you but, you yeah. hit it on the head. Yeah, that, he didn't tell me the answer beforehand, and he guys. really didn't. We didn't even ask. <laughs> You leave it to Matt to, to, to come up with an actual good question. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 like, it's kind of weird because, like, when you drink traditional rum, you don't get that pepper flavor that you get like you get off a rye. But the pepper hits just literally for a second, but the finish is just so sweet and smooth. Like, it's it's crazy how good that product is. Is, that, is this something you're going to try to accidentally reproduce some more we of? Will, we will come up with iterations and we will roll out batch two. We will roll out batch two, um, hopefully late this summer. Gotcha. So we've got the rye. Uh, we think it, we've settled on a blend of two different rums, one a six-year, one an eight-year, and we will uh, hopefully get that blended in may let it sit for about six weeks and then take it to bottle it really only needs to sit for three but whatever so that's that's the other thing like the one thing that i've been learning through this whole process of the podcast and everything else is the amount of like people that are blending and how do you know you got the right mix oh my goodness that's a perfect segue so you guys have just tried our small batch product, which is an 11 year old rum from El Salvador that we've been finishing for over two years in Kentucky in a variety of bourbon, rye, port, and sherry barrels. Now, now as I said, this is a true 11 year small batch. Very true 11 year, not, not a drop of 11 with some six and some four and some three. Uh, we imported the uh, what I understand is the last four thousand bulk liters that were sold to American producers uh, from from the only distillery in El Salvador before they cut off all their bulk sales to then start on their own brands, and it was a vanilla bomb. It was it was it was pleasant. It was a dessert in a glass. It had so many. So many sweet notes, but it was one-dimensional. It had no layers. It did not have a, a well-balanced body. But it gave us all the base products that we thought that we could work with. And we wanted to prove to ourselves, without a real great plan, that through the maturation and influence of oak, we can completely alter this spirit in color, in finish, in body. And the... Um, the used bourbon barrels we used through its char and through the wood and through already being used bourbon, it added those caramel notes that you bring out in the middle body. And it, it really helped shape some of the middle palate. The rye, what, what we didn't know while doing this was that the rye and the sherry barrels actually fight each other and the sherry wins. So we, in my, in my opinion, I could be wrong. Um, I just felt like the sherry did more for the product and those two kind of fall within the same spice subsets, you know, the, um, like the raisins and the, the tannins that you go after, but the sherry and the port totally added a tannic complexity to the finish. 
And when we were going to bottle this, my partner and I lined up probably 15 different ratios of blends on, on the rye, the port, the bourbon and the sherry. And we were just, just spinning our wheels stupid. And all of them tasted pretty good together or individually. And they all tasted pretty good together. So while we could could pretend to say that we came up with some masterful blend, at the end of the day, we just dumped what we had and, and let it blend itself. Hmm. Uh, I, I mean, based on your ratios and what you do, you, you should not do that every time. We had more bourbon and rye than we had sherry and port, so they were going to balance each other out. The sherry wasn't going to overpower the entire product. But I do think blending is the next frontier. Obviously, you see it in the way that we market products these days. Um, so it's it's a game that we're learning to get into. So the, the bottle, the short bottle with the, it's a rolling quart rum right here. And you were saying that this was um, the home version that you're really searching for from the, the 11 year old that we, we tried a minute ago. Absolutely. We wanted to do, we set out to envision a triple finished product in 2014. And we put, we got some, some staves, ran them through a wood chipper, soaked a portion of the stave in, in port wine, soaked a portion in sherry wine, like the cheapest wine you can find. And, then left the, the bourbon stave as it was. And we ran, um, we, we got about a batch of four and a half gallons of sorghum based rum that were, that were made. And we soaked them in those sta- different stave batches for about nine weeks. And that came out with a flavor profile that said, boy, if we can get better juice and better barrels and come close to this, we might have something. Gotcha. So for people that maybe don't know, um, what's what's rum made of versus what's you know bourbon made out of? So what's the ingredients that make rum rum versus bourbon bourbon? So I think for for the majority of people, rum is a molasses based, sugar based product. Uh, there's different ways that you can um, you can manufacture. The production of rum uh the french use an agricole style which is is skimming the juice off the top of the pot as a, of the molasses pot as it's boiling uh the trick with that is that you have to then distill that juice or get that juice fermented uh within 24 hours of skimming it off the top the most the most commonly made way is just using molasses. Uh, molasses is a byproduct of sugar. Uh, the big difference there, so yeah, um, bourbon American whiskey is grain-based. Rum and rum-based and, and cachaça and, and sugar-based products are not grain-based. American whiskey, a single malt scotch, Irish whiskey, all have single jurisdictional parameters that shape the production and quality of those products. Mm-hmm. Rum is multi-jurisdictional. It has no boundaries, which is why we so commonly think of rum as just uh, this 
24 ounce daiquiri you get on a vacation cruise. Mm -hmm. What our objective is, is to apply the American whiskey standards that exist today to rums to get people that are seeking older aged high quality spirits and get them to to consider rum as something that they should have on their shelf as well. So do you think that you're going to have to, you know, source for quite a bit longer while you're waiting for your product to age the way that you want it to? Oh yes. Yeah. I, I, I foresee us sourcing. I mean, I foresee, I, shit, I don't know. I foresee us for sourcing <laughs> forever. Um, I would like us to be at a point in the next, I would, our short term goals are to, you know, currently we source and contract out everything. It's me and one other dude. We both have day jobs, um, which means we spend a lot of nights at 10 PM on the phone, which is really annoying. Um, but our, our short term objectives are to get our own warehouse and bottling space. And then after in that, Jamaica, that'd be cool. That'd be way cool. Market research in Jamaica. Market research in Jamaica. <laughs> well, like, I mean, you know, not to, not to sidetrack so much, but you take a, you take a good nose on either one of these two rums. And I mean, I just want to be on the beach drinking them. What do you think about that single barrel? I haven't tried it yet. I okay. just took a nose of it and I, it smells fantastic. We were, we were in Jamaica not too long ago and like, know, there's like, like a crazy, like raisin tannin to this. Like it's really, so Jamaicans are Jamaican distilling is the home of process called dundering. Dundering is this equivalent process to sour mashing. Yeah. So they started dundering to try and create some product consistency with the pot stills that they were using because before before the industrial times, um, and, and the column still was was created. You know, it's very hard to create product consistency. But Jamaicans invented that process of dundering of setting a portion of your spent batch back into your new batch to create some consistency and that's what creates that banana nut bread on the nose and, and on the front of the palate. That's it. Yeah, I was trying to figure out what that nose was and that's perfect. I, I just need the Jamaican jerk chicken guy to come by on his cart and give me some and I have this in a glass. We were in Jamaica not too long ago at at some resort. Stop bragging. I know. That's all I can do, Toby. I've got nothing else going for me. Let it be. I mean, look at that face. Right? <laughs> Don't look at Scott's face. It might hurt. That's right. I got a face for radio. That's why I'm here. <laughs> you, you and me both, buddy. The hair says it all. Absolutely. So I, I would literally just sit on a beach and drink that. Just give me a straw and stick it in there. It is phenomenal. And, and I think part of also our objectives... Or that every time a five-year-old single barrel of bourbon is released at over $250, I hope a rum drinker's born. Because I I can we're we're playing a costing game. The consumer demand hasn't caught up. And, you know, for me, I hope it doesn't necessarily catch all the way up. I don't think it will ever be what American whiskey is today. But I can provide really good older age spirits at a fairly reasonable price. So, so give me an idea here. I mean, what 
What are we talking about? If I were to see these bottles on the shelf, what am I expected to pay for them? So our small batch El Salvador rum, which is 11-year base, uh, two-year finished in Kentucky, should retail no more than $85. Okay. Uh, the Jamaican single barrel that you all tried, which is um, which was acquired by Jamie and Lincoln Road, who is arguably one of the most prominent barrel pickers in the United States, you know, that retails for 125 And for a 12-year-old single barrel, I think that's a very fair price. 120 proof, too, not, yeah. not yeah, to I mean, add. That, that was the other thing. I was like, it, it, it's got some heat to it. I mean, it's you, like 118, 119. Or, or some stank on stank. it. Stank, that's right. Stank. <laughs> you can chase some other small batch or single barrel rums in the United States. They're, they're hard to find. Our our differentiator is we don't proof anything down. We, for all of our products, we want them to be tailored towards whiskey audiences. So no product we will release will be lower than 100 proof. But for these single barrels, I've seen other guys do single barrels, but they still drop them in the 90s range, which means they're they're adding water. We we will not do that. Uh, what's so. the point of doing a single barrel if you're going to water it down? Get more bottles. Yeah, but. <laughs> money but money. It, it doesn't improve taste remember that now. tree we were trying to plant in the backyard earlier <laughs> so so i have to ask when is my single barrel cuban rum coming in oh buddy go, <laughs> go ask somebody else uh that's kind of i got a bottle of havana club seven year hey there we go um in 2012 yeah and that was when i was like Turner needs to start drinking some rum. Uh, but we didn't really make the shift towards rum until we really screwed around with sorghum. By screwing around with sorghum, I called, I got every agricultural list for Kentucky, Indiana, Ohio, Kansas, and Oklahoma. And I was calling every major sorghum producer. I had lined up about 15 to 25,000 bulk gallons of sorghum that I was going to purchase. This is before I realized that it yields at 11%. What a yield means at 11%, if I take a thousand gallons of water, create a mash with it, I should get 200 to 300 gallons of product out of that. I should have a 20 to 30% yield. But if I take a thousand gallons of water and I only get 110 from a production standpoint, it's not commercially viable. I learned that the dumb way. Um, so the best lessons to learn, though. Yeah, yeah. I called a lot of farmers back and said I'm sorry. Um, and uh, and but but yeah, I Havana Club Seven Year, not the Puerto Rican kind. Uh, really, was the first time that I was like, holy shit, rum is good. I actually have a bottle of that at home. Congratulations. Have you had, have you had the fifteen yet? Nope. Nope. Been chasing it. Should told me I would have brought it over. I'm so dumb at this. <laughs> Yeah, um, my father-in-law, who lived next to a person who got that came to the United States from Cuba, um, they worked together over at a warehouse, and every time that he would come go home, he would bring back uh, different kinds of rum, and 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 he had like ten bottles of it because he kept on bringing it for him. So I got a couple of those. So it's it's actually pretty nice stuff so i forget the dude's name um i went to hear him speak he was uh the press secretary for jfk and a couple other presidents and uh he told the story how he got a phone call from jfk and he said i need you to go to cuba 
and I need you to come back and bring me 12 cases of cigars and 12 cases of rum. And he said, and I need you back here by tomorrow at before 12 o'clock. And he was like, sir, I, that's a tall order. And JFK said, and I knew you're the man to call and hung up. And so <laughs> his press secretary um, gets a flight to Cuba, flies down, uh, buys 12 cases of both, brings it back, lands at, at 11 o'clock, lets JFK know that it's here. And then at 12 o'clock, he announces the trade embargo. Oh, man, that's messed up. That's great. I mean, though. That's a me, great story. Don't get me wrong. I, I was in Cuba maybe a year ago when you could still. We fell into that short window. Yeah, where you, you could, did. Where you could cruise there. So we cruised there, spent overnight for 24 hours. Man, I'm going to tell you what. That is the coolest atmosphere. It is. Just, everyone's so homey and friendly. And it's safe there because. The government will hurt your family if you do something illegal. Right. So our tour guides were telling us, they're like, no one really commits crimes because instead of punishing the person that committed the crime, they're like, well, we're just going to go knock on your parents' door and and then you're going to have to deal with the consequences from there. But the way that they sell their cigars and rum isn't necessarily through the factory. Like You can take a tour of Havana Club. It's it's dirt cheap to go do it. It's pretty cool. It's just like any distillery tour. But if you go buy cigars, rum, whatever, I mean, our tour guide took us to his mom's house. His mom made us coffee, put booze in it. And he comes back with like three bottles of Havana club 15 and seven boxes of cigars and said, all right, guys, what do y'all want? What are we smoking right now? (laughs) And I was like, hold on. How did you get to do that? So when we booked a cruise, friends of ours had taken these people as a tour guide and they said, here's their number, here's their email, get in touch with them. And we just took a shot and we're like, well, what's the worst that could happen? We're in Cuba. Well, I know. Listen, you only live once. Some people say dumb stuff. (laughs) But, But it was cool because like their lifestyle, we were sitting in his mom's living room. And she's like, what do you guys need, like lighters to light up your cigars or anything? And we're, there's like fine china in front of us. Like she's serving us, you know, coffee and, and little pastries. I mean, it was the coolest experience that no one will ever get to do again. It's, it's crazy because the, um, the Caribbean, based off of what it is, and we'll, we'll call it what it is, the sugar and the slave trade. It ain't pretty, but it happened. Um they still have a lot of those ingrained relationships with, with, with European countries. And Europe is the biggest importer of rums. Uh, they acquire like, like while, while the rum market is relatively unknown here, um, it's, it's very popular. You know, they, they have a small rum community that is, that is, you know, comparable to our American bourbon community that exists currently. And here's some more fun facts about rum. You know, rum has more to do with the United States being the United States than, than corn or American whiskey. Uh, the Sugar Acts of 1633 and I think 1663 were a big impact on the claim of no taxation without representation. And at the time of the colonies, you could either only produce 
rye or sugar-based spirits on the coast because you, you we weren't growing corn yet. Um, so for me, it's 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 very interesting that I got into this because of my family. My family landed here because of the Revolutionary War. The Revolutionary War, rum has a small place in the sugar trade and how it affected the start of the Revolutionary War, and now I'm selling rum. It's a great story. It's, it's, it's one of those things that we all wish our family have would have been able to give us the inspiration. My last name's Hadfield, so... Um, I, I live with the stigma of being a Western, a West Virginia hillbilly, but it's okay. I mean, it, it is what it is. Toby, I, you fit the stereotype <laughs> pretty good. Other than the full mouth of teeth. True. There's one off, Scott. Just let it go. <laughs> so tell us, how do you, how did you come to the actual like labeling process, things like that. And so did you pick a local guy? Cause it, it seems like most of the stuff you've done just from other than the fact that you're sourcing in El Salvador and Jamaica and Trinidad, you're, you're, you're a local guy. Like you really want to use local people for this. You talked about the business cards, which we, you know, we're, talked about different things like that. So we're, we're local and we're very hands-on. Um, I mean, my, I mean, yesterday I was the CEO of shipping and logistics, um, I mean, it's, we, we, we handle everything. It's not like I get to just cut a check to somebody else and they do all the work for me. We do everything when it came to, so it was funny. Um, we had hired three different designers and said, we'll both, we'll pay you all a hundred dollars up front for three iterations of a rolling fork label design. And then the winner will then go on and um and get to work with us we selected three local dudes um and and this guy from louisville who now lives in california his name's bill green he does all the design work for the lebowski festival and some other things i love the lebowski festival and um and bill gave us the most unique inspiring uh design work so we said, Bill, let's roll with this. Let's do this rolling fork stuff. And then Fortuitous Union happened. We fucked up all our juice. So then we had to completely pivot and come up with a new bottle, a new design, and new artwork. Uh, we try to, yeah, we get our, we, we hand out our print work to local companies. Um, you know, we're, we work with local distilleries for aging and for bottling purposes. Um and we are really luckily supported by, by, I mean, part of the reason our, our advantage to the Caribbean is that while it's a little bit of a challenge to import rum, those some bitches have to export or import barrels. And you don't know the quality and consistency of, of barrels that you're choosing that get packed up and shipped to Scotland and then packed up and shipped to the Caribbean. You don't know what's going on. I can go to Kelvin Cooperage. I can go to Independence Dave or uh, Kentucky Bourbon Barrel and hand select all the barrels we use. I don't just send an order in to buy certain things. We go down and we specifically pick out specific barrel types based on 
um, their char level, their age, their maturation, what was in there, what what it what is it? You don't get those choices. Um, so that's some. That, I mean, we're really fortunate to be in bourbon country and be surrounded by um, a state that knows how to produce spirits. One of the things, what you said was similar to another comment that when we were speaking with uh, the folks at Copper and Kings, um, they get a lot of support from the bourbon industry because they're not a competitor of the bourbon industry. They're, they're getting, they're getting barrels, they're getting, um, um, collaborations and things like that because they don't feel like they're a direct competitor with, with Woodford or Jim Beam or, or whoever. So, uh, I'm assuming it would be the same way where, because, because this isn't American whiskey, this isn't something. So you're not going to compete with shelf space with those guys. It's, it's funny. Um, so Charles Medley from the Medley brothers, who, um, is the owner proprietor of Wathens whiskey, uh, who's a cousin of mine. He's got a good line, uh, which is that the accountants killed off the bourbon guild. <laughs> and once the accountants showed up, everything went to shit. Mm-hmm. And that was that mid-90s to early 2000s. And with the craft movement, I think you're seeing that gilded atmosphere of respect and intrigue and knowledge sharing that was probably void for about 20 years Mm -hmm. uh, where us small guys, we don't have chains of command and channels. I can call Royce Neely. I can call, you know, I I can call on people to get advice. I mean, I can call Brent Gooden down at Boundary Oak Distillery and ask him what, how, and what. Um, and I can call some of the bigger guys. Um, so, I think I think right now we are in a time and place where all ships float. I think it's going to be that way for the next three to five years. I think you will see a proliferation and a slowdown of brands being brought to new mar- being brought to market. I think you'll see a slowdown on new brands, but in terms of booze, I don't think you're going to see a slowdown. Uh, I feel like we're already starting to see a little bit where. Uh... I've read a couple of stories recently where some of the smaller distilleries are actually starting to get bought already by the larger ones. Um, so that way it gives them a little bit more um, edge on the craft market. Listen, as long as we're still working in sales, people will buy booze. Let's just call that what that is. It's, it's inelastic. <laughs> I mean, the economy can go up or down, and maybe that affects the, the highest point on the shelf, but people are going to drink good days or bad days people are going to drink right you drink Completely to celebrate agree. you drink to, <laughs> to you drink get rid to of your sorrow yeah. that's right so it, it you're exactly right there so i i know i asked you this when we were kind of prepping um for today but um what do you see the the future for rolling forks i mean are we talking about bourbon here in the near future where you might start sourcing some stuff there to get to the point where maybe you can open a distillery and get moving in that direction or what's, what's the future look like? I would like to play in the rum space for the next three to five years. And I would like us to get to our own point of having our own facilities and when, and if we can get that far, which I think we will, I would start to like to lay down our own juice for an actual bourbon or some rye. I think we will start, um, contracting out some mash bills for some rise. 
just because it already plays into fortuitous union, we need it. We've, we've got a contract relationship with MGP. Um, it's not that big, but they are very nice to us. But uh, from an authentic, from an authentic, from an authenticity standpoint, I am doing this to get to the point where we are producing our own spirits. Um, I am not going to undercut the value of the consumer and the product and, and try and go and do this all on my own and then release a shitty spirit at $45. I don't want to do that. I mean, if I could do what, um, what the, the, what, uh, the boys by Cincinnati did Why am I blanking on their name? New um, riff. I mean, New riff. that's a, that's a phenomenal fucking five-year-old bourbon at 112 proof. Uh, their single barrels are are out of this world. It's so, me their rise are better than their bourbons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I will challenge you to that all day. <laughs> Listen. So so Max Mac Gauntlet Gauntlet laid down. I, <laughs> I got I, I've got a sense of this whole game and, and how it all works and, and what it takes. I've been working on this for ten years. We've been in production for five years. We've been on the market for three. So I know what it takes, but if you're going to sit here and ask me, can I be new riff? I'm a, I have no fucking idea. Cause that, I feel like that's such a big accomplishment for what they pulled off. I would like to be something like that down the road. Um, we're just taking small steps to get there. You just need a, a rich friend. I need a, yeah, I need a money guy. <laughs> money guy. Yeah. Attention. If there's any money guys out there, great hey, investing opportunity. Hey, for hey I need a bag, man. I need that bag. What's what's funny is about what you say that is, um, the more I talk with the, we've actually we've went back and forth said should we source a barrel source, ten barrels should we, start doing that just to try to build a brand I said with the name last name Hatfield it's it's a shame that there's not a bourbon uh, on the market with the Hatfield name on it it just seems like it fits. Um, is it they, a shame they, or is it a blessing? They Toby? didn't Come agree. <laughs> they didn't agree, but that's okay. Um, which is ironic because there is a McCoy that was a lot of lore in we, Southern we, Indiana. We, we, yeah. Listen, I, I think I think the Mitten and Jasnoff Distilling Company's got a great M and J. M and J. But the the reason I say that is um, I reached out to some folks and 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 there are some money people out there who who have said, well, I'm interested, and then other people say, I'm interested. So. The, it's always out there. It's always possible to find those people, and, and you never know where the next level can be. For every offer I've taken up, I've turned down 20. Um, everybody's going to devalue you. Everybody's going to – like I, I got one friend who every year brings up investing, and every year I say, buddy, you're going to get a shitty offer than you did last year because you didn't invest last year, and we grow more. Like, and And then in terms of – building a brand so so i mean i'm naive i thought i got a good story i care about what's in the bottle so i'm not gonna make a shitty shitty product and i care about packaging so we're gonna do our best to design packaging that fits what consumers are looking for and i thought oh buddy you do this you're you're running with the horses you're gonna go you are gonna make it happen you are gonna sell 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 all that does is get you to the starting gate. Mm-hmm. And then you've got to sell, market, deal with distributors, deal with pricing structures, come up with incentives, 
and come up with ways to grow a footprint. And that sucks. <laughs> so let me ask you a follow-up question to that. I know that, you know, you're starting something new on the single barrel rum train that's phenomenal. And I'm not saying that because we've had a lot of it already. But <laughs> your thought about doing your own rum, I guess, distribution company? Because if you can monopolize that, then save the cost on distributing your own rum to liquor stores while getting more people involved in it, that could almost revolutionize. But you can't have two of the three tiers. Right. But Oh, because I'm only importing. Right. I'm you not producing. Because you're importing from Jim. So you wouldn't technically have that. So you would technically would loophole that. So if you if you are part of your own bottling you are considered a manufacturer. Right. So um, I would, I would, I hypothetically, it's just a, th- it's yeah, just a thought. It's a good thought. Because then you're having, now you have two sources of income versus one big source of income and then paying someone to distribute your bottles for you. My, we would, we would love to do what some of the bigger guys are doing, which is to be able to be a house and provider. Uh, for smaller startup brands, we, we I would like to go that route for a yeah. second source of income. I, um, I think it'd be genius if you all did that. So that begs the question, and, and this is by ignorance here: Why can't you be all three tiers? Because the law. Yeah, um, well, we don't like that. No, there, there's no. something written down that says well, you can't do no, that. <laughs> no, 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 no. There ain't nothing written down. Well, you, I mean, I'm using air quotes yeah. when I say written down. Yeah, but. you you can do it. Just don't get caught. Here's the one thing about the government. They don't, they are not going to help you with anything. They're not going to, they are not, they're not going to offer you an ounce of reciprocal. Let's say I call you and I say, I got a space that I really want to permit. Can I just buy the fire marshal's time for an hour to come and inspect it? And they're going to say, no, you got to have a signed lease. And I say, well, I don't want to sign the lease until I know you're going to permit the space. And they're going to say, nope, you got to sign the lease before we will inspect the space. And it's it's that type of reciprocal relationship with the government that is a kick in the nuts. But um, the government won't ever try to enforce anything. But once they catch you, they'll drive you into the grave. Oh, um, it's funny. when are about we, to poke those spots on scott that's going to get him going on a tangent right now about the government yeah don't even get me started i can see i can see him like stewing over there so when we were trying to file our so you get a federal permit and then you move on to your state licenses to be able to sell and distribute in every state so when we were trying to file our premises with the state uh we rented storage units we uh we contracted out other people's we we went through it every time and we went through it about five times before we realized idiot find a licensing agency use them and every time the state wouldn't wouldn't respond to anything i asked unless we were willing to send a lawyer up to, to do the hour of turning in and receiving the no, which is, 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 is expensive. So we went to go through a, through a licensing company 
and all of a sudden we have product for sale and all of a sudden the state wants to know how we're doing it. Well, guess who didn't answer their phone calls? I sure as hell didn't pick up that phone. <laughs> well, I was looking at a, uh, a YouTube video not too long ago about how um, to start a brand. And one of the things they said, you, you need these licensing companies. You need all these third parties to come in and because they can get through the, some of the red tape. And I think that's a problem with the industry because you shouldn't need those people. You should be able to make a phone call and get something done because they're trying to, it's, it's not, they're not against you. They shouldn't fight against you. You got a bag, man. They won't fight you. Right. But that, that's the real problem, right? <clears throat> that's what I, I'm not going to go on my tangent, but I, I will say, Wait, I've got please a, don't go on your tangent. I, I do have a client that like literally went through all of this red tape. He was building this brand new, beautiful facility that would really enhance the community that he, that he was putting it in. And literally the town would not approve something that the state had already approved. Now, how ridiculous is yeah. that? If it's good enough for the state, why isn't it good enough for the town? Here's a funny story. Um, so my first applications, um, I filed because we outsource everything. I filed my house as the location, but I submitted, I submitted all the documents that show, here is how, here is all our contracted facilities. Here's all of our contracts. Here's everything. Like we are just, we just need a business entity for you to send paperwork to and bills to. Well, without being notified, um, a TTB agent showed up at my house, hmm. but he gave me a 45 minute warning. And I had to learn how to understand distillate at some point. So I had a lot of shit in my house and I had 45 minute window. I had my wife's parents upstairs watching my kid and I was dumping every still and every component I had into buckets, into totes and loading them into my car. I drove my car around the block. I put a blanket over it. I ran to the house. I opened the door, welcomed the guy in. And then an hour later I walked to my car and unloaded all that shit. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's crazy. I thought you were going to say no, something. No, I'm good. So, well, good deal. Uh, <clears throat> well, I tell you what, Turner, we've had a great time today. Is there anything else you want to cover as far as, you know, the lore, where you're at, what's going on? Thank you, guys. No, this is um, – I appreciate you guys' time. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. This is the most fun podcast I've ever done. Probably helps that I'm drinking. It makes me feel good. <laughs> that I, always wait, helps. do you not normally drink during podcasts? Yeah, there's some, man. Why? It gets weird. It makes it so much better. Yeah. yeah. It's a prerequisite for bourbon barrel talk. If you're going to talk any kind of spirits, we, we, we've got to we have We've got to have a glass. I, I can't think of one that we did so far that, that hasn't involved. There's one. No, we had a we had a few sips beforehand. Not like we Just did at the couple. others, but we've we've had yeah. sips everywhere. So not enough to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just um I just want people if you're listening uh, and you're interested, go to Rolling Fork uh, Rum dot go to Rolling Fork Rum dot com. Go check us out on Facebook. You can message us when people do message ups. It doesn't happen, but when they do, they get responses from the founders. And then then I see Reddit posts like, oh, I asked these dudes a questions and the founders responded with an hour. Yeah, we're desperate. <laughs> and um, passionate. It's not desperate. It's passionate. passionate. 
it's, it's how I got into state liquor is that I was very passionate. Scott's like, boy, you had a lot of choice words, but you were passionate, so we'll carry you. Um, Will you leave if we carry you? Yes. <laughs> yes. All right, done. Done. Please don't come back. And uh, no, I do a lot of tastings there. I, I hope people understand that our mission and objective is to honor the heritage and everything that American whiskey production has done for this great country. We invented taxation. We invented consumer protection. Uh, those are two of the biggest things that drive how we interact in, uh, in a consumer-facing society. And I just want people to know that we are just applying those standards and subsets to a product category. And that doesn't mean that producers in the Caribbean aren't also doing it. We are the ones that are going to be the rum evangelists to bring it to new people's attention that might not be aware of it. And I think, I judging by your all's reaction, I think you all can agree that there are whiskey sippers out there that can appreciate good rum. No, absolutely. absolutely. That, that, that's the one thing, like I told you, not a, not a big rum drinker, but everything I've had today out of the four or five products we've tried has been great. I mean, it's been really good to drink. Hanky, uh, most of here. it's super smooth. All right, we, we, we brought somebody else into the podcast. Let's bring him on in. Who we got coming? Hanky, baby. You got to come here now. So this is my son. Come on, Hank. This is my son, Henry Miller Wathen. He's named after Henry Hudson Wathen, who is the guy that served in the Revolutionary War. Um, we might not get him, actually. Yeah. But <laughs> hey, man, you guys. Microphone shot. He, he's waving <laughs> hi. I, I sincerely appreciate you guys stealing two hours out of your day to come and bullshit with me oh, and, and let's do it again. Time. So if, if they want to find you, they can find you at rollingforksrum.com. Go to rollingforkrum.com. Look us up on Facebook, Rolling Fork Rum. Uh, reach out to us in any way capacity. If you email us, if you Facebook us, you're going to get a response from the founders. And, um, and you know, check us out. Uh, we're, you know, we're carried in Kentucky, Illinois, Texas, uh, Massachusetts, and we do a little bit of work in Mississippi, and we're moving into Tennessee, uh, and we hope we uh, continue to be able to do this uh, down the road. That's good. If you want to reach Bourbon Barrel Talk, you can reach us at bourbonbarreltalk at gmail.com for email. If you want to check out our website, it's www.bourbonbarreltalk.com, and you can also hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again, Turner, for having us over and letting us try this great product. Um, this is Scott Minton, Bourbon Barrel Talk, signing off. See ya.